ask me. Okay, so this is Claire Berlinski, the Cosmopolitan Globalist, and we have with us tonight, would you like to just introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Kate Sorkan. I'm the editor-in-chief of Epophany magazine, and I am an editor, writer, translator. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you've just been, are you in Romania now? I'm in Chernivtsi, in Ukraine. Oh, you're still in Ukraine. Okay, so so Vladislav is in Romania, right? I I guess so. Yeah, I, I saw on Twitter he wrote that he left the country with his father-in-law. Okay, and so have you been have you been working with him recently? Is there a reason he suggested you? Is or is it, he did he just uh, read so the? I've, I've known Vladislav for many years actually, right. and I met him in Chernivtsi with uh, Regina, his wife, and some friends of theirs. We did a we did a like a panel. They were here for a, this Yiddish conference in Chernivtsi. Mm -hmm. And um, he, when he came to Ukraine, I don't even know which time, he's been here a few times since the invasion started. He stayed in Chernivtsi and there's nowhere to stay really, like hotels, everything is packed. So he lived with my uncle-in-law actually. And uh, he, he hosted, my uncle-in-law hosted Vlad and my uh, husband's family just like fell in love with him. Like even now my, my granny is like, how is Vladislav doing? <laughs> Uh, darling, he's darling. Yeah. All right. So, uh, just because our readers don't know um, what we were just talking about, uh, you wrote an article this morning. It was published in the Guardian about cancer hospitals in Ukraine, um, and it's 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 a very it's it's unspeakable to think of people who are already going through the fear and the stress and the pain of a cancer diagnosis and treatment also having to hide in the basement of the hospital and worry about evacuating their patients, patients who've just had surgery. And I, I thought, how did you, um, when, when you show up at these hospitals and say, I want to write an article about you, are they happy to see you because they want people to understand what they're going through? Or, or, or did you feel that you were an extra nuisance? Uh, no, I already, so uh, in the article, I uh, quoted Andriy Baznosenko, he's the head doctor at the Cancer Institute, right. and I uh, knew him already because unfortunately I have my own health problems. Um, I, I wrote about it for Zaborona, Ukrainian uh, news platform a, a while back, mm -hmm. uh, about the troubles of uh, the inequality of uh, medical care in Ukraine. So I, I actually have this very rare genetic disorder called Cowden syndrome, which puts me at a huge risk for cancer. And um, can doctors here in Chernivtsi were basically telling me to cut out my intestines if I want to live. But I went to Kiev to the Cancer Institute. And there I met Andriy Besnosenko, who met with me for an hour. Uh, and he told me which tests I have to take uh, no, to, to try and diagnose what's wrong with me. And thanks to him, I was on the path to living a healthy life with all of my organs. So I, I've kept in touch with him because he's, uh, he's a specialist in the cancers that I'm most at risk for. Right. And uh, he was very happy to speak to me when I, when I wrote him. Mm -hmm. And I asked him if I could uh, tell his story because I was sure that uh, during the battle for Kiev, that's probably because he was writing on Facebook. We are still working. Uh, please, patients who need treatment, please come. Do not be afraid. We will help you. And uh, so I, I really I, I knew I had to to tell this story. And he was uh, just absolutely wonderful answering all of my questions. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very powerful story. And it's 
just such a miserable thing to think that all of the miseries of life, they don't go away because there's a war. They're just made worse by it. Yeah, and, and the fact that there's so many cancer patients who are from uh, these outer regions of Kiev, like Bucha or Irpin or uh, from Mariupol or Kherson, and they have not only to think about their cancer treatment, now they have no home to go to, uh, go back to. And uh, it's, it's a really hard situation. And a lot of uh, cancer patients fled the country. So uh, Cancer Institute, the doctors there have to uh, try and find ways to digitize their records because doctors in you know, the Baltics or Germany don't know how to treat them if they're already in the middle of their treatment. So it's really, uh, I, Ukraine is very lucky to have such dedicated oncologists as the ones who work at the Cancer Institute because they really, they really care and they really are doing everything they can in spite of all the horrible odds against them right now. Yeah, yeah. How are they doing on supplies, on medical supplies? Are there shortages? Uh, well, he, he said, yeah, they, they did have some shortages of medicine, but there's some organization in Great Britain that has been sending them in like tranches and they're soon to get another batch. And uh, Ukrainian diaspora has been getting a lot of supplies for them. There was one drug, I, I forget the name, I mentioned it in the article, uh, one dose is like $5,000 uh, to administer, and they got a bunch of uh, batches for free, thanks to Ukrainian diaspora. So uh, thankfully, they don't have to worry too much about uh, about medical supplies and medicine. But uh, I, according to Dr. Besnosenko, he said that um, they have much lower numbers than before. People are scared to go to Kiev. Actually, uh, people from all over Ukraine would go to the National Cancer Institute before the start of the invasion because uh, they have better expertise. The, the operation rooms and recovery wards are much more advanced. They're absolutely unparalleled compared to the rest of the country. Uh, but, but now, because of the invasion, uh, they have much less patients. Um, so we'll see what happens. So are the patients seeking treatment at local hospitals or not getting treatment at all? Uh, well, actually, I, I, I can speak personally in this situation. I had my uh, like yearly uh, colonoscopy because of my genetic disorder in Kiev. Uh, cancer, uh, it was planned the week of the invasion. So I, I had to, I, I couldn't go. It was too dangerous. Uh, so like people like me had to seek out treatment, which was uh, not as advanced because biopsies, uh, you, you can't get a biopsy in Chernivtsi, like the kind you get in Kiev unfortunately. So uh, he, he did, uh, Dr. Besnosenko did tell me uh, that there are uh, some cancer patients in Ukraine who just stopped their treatment or they aren't getting enough. Uh, but they have moved a lot of patients uh, from Kiev who are, who are living in the Cancer Institute, those from like Kherson, Mariupol, uh, they were moved to the west of Ukraine to, can to oncological uh, centers there. And I think that the Institute uh, in Kyiv is doing a lot to help uh, their colleagues in the West because there's over a 300% uptake in patients in the West of Ukraine seeking cancer treatment. So they, they need help. So they're really doing a lot to coordinate. It seems a very rich idea metaphorically, the idea of battling cancer and battling a Russian invasion. It seems like you could write some kind of novel about that. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you can even make a kind of metaphor for this Ruski Mir, like a cancer well, that exactly. Ukrainians are trying to cut out of them. And uh, Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, Vladislav, hi. Hi, ladies. I wasn't going to interrupt that. I, well, we wanted to hello. say hello to you. How are you? Hi, are hi, hi. You're in Romania? I'm in Bucharest. I'm in a, in a hotel room in Bucharest, 
in between Odessa and Paris, taking my father-in-law out of the country. He's finally agreed to go? He's finally agreed to go. He is uh, he's, uh, sitting in the corner grumbling. He's, uh, <laughs> what is his name? I, I, I want to say hello to him, but I don't. Monsieur, uh, Monsieur, Monsieur. Georgi Semyonovich, do you want to say hello to some pretty ladies? Георгий Семенович, красивые девушки, они хотят сказать здравствуйте. Да. We promise there's nothing but pretty ladies waiting for you in Paris. He says from the other side of the room, what are you, what are you, what are you getting me involved in? What are you doing? What are you getting me? He says, are you making fun of me? No. He said this is elder abuse from the other side. He's a... He's a real, he's like a real alpha male sailor with guns and, and dogs and a big... He said girls are good when they're, when they're, they're close, but what do, you, what do you want me to do on the other side of a phone? Exactly. exactly. Well, I'd like to know, um, would you ask him what made him decide that it was time to leave? Georgi Semyonovich. Uh, he doesn't speak much English. Georgi Semyonovich, почему вы решили, что надо наконец-таки уехать? What made you decide to leave? He says, I want to see my daughter. I want to see my daughter, which is my wife. Well, that's him. He said, I, uh, he said I wouldn't go if Vlad wasn't around. I what am I, I going to do, Jim? What am I going to do, F-bomb? Go myself, F-bomb? <laughs> what, about the, what, about, what about the moonshine? He's a bootlegger. He says, I'm a bootlegger. <laughs> well, did you bring it with you and your art collection? I brought the art collection. I brought, it's funny, I brought the art collection where all these American volunteers on the Romanian border, nice people from Alabama. They said, you know, you're the first, I've been here for a month, you're the first Ukrainian I see traveling with an art collection. <laughs> What's in the art collection? Uh, I, I got a couple of Stalzelobnuk paintings, uh, a couple of things. Uh, really, you can't really carry a lot of art in your own hands. I mean, we we're carrying three or four paintings, but, you know, it's very difficult about if you're just traveling by uh, ferry. We, yeah, we, we were going uh, by car, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah we, it did look a bit eccentric carrying art around, I have to tell you. Well, especially if you're carrying the art and the distillery. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. We were carrying a couple of a couple of bags and art. Georgi Semyonovich, we took the art out. We took the art out. Um, our listeners don't understand. I'm, I'm saying in Russian English. I know, no, I'm just saying I'd like to tell our listeners that your father-in-law famously wouldn't leave because he didn't want to leave his hooch behind. <laughs> he didn't. He, look, he, he has hooch in his garage. Mm -hmm. I was more concerned about the paintings than, than his bootleg uh, Garilka homemade vodka, which is in the garage. Uh, Is that what you're asking for? Is that what you're asking for? What about the vodka? I'm, I'm just applauding, vodka? I'm applauding the industry of making vodka in your garage. It's Samagon, he says. Pimba, he says. It's, uh, it's uh, homemade hooch. Pimba. Vodka. Pimba. Yeah. He's asking, you want me to explain how to make it? You want a receipt? A receipt? No, when you get to Paris, you'll show me. I think okay, I, can, okay. I, can, I can hardly um, 
do better than having personal coaching through distilling my own vodka in the kitchen. Yeah, right? I don't, I don't, I don't want my uh, father-in-law getting into politics. He starts yelling, and and uh, <laughs> uh, it doesn't. It's not very pretty. Go to your Go to bed. He's just fine. Goodbye. He said goodbye. 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 He's here. He's he's winking. He's you know, he's still handsome. He's 77, but he's still handsome. A 27-year-old uh, young woman, a Ukrainian border guard at the uh, on the border, she was flirting with him. She looks at him and he's got he's still handsome. He's got these beautiful blue eyes. Uh, and if he's uh, his actually knows, so he's in his late 70s, but he's a handsome fellow. It's where my wife gets her looks. Uh, and and she says to him, "Are you eighteen already, young man?" <laughs> so tell me, tell me what things are like in Odessa. Well, uh, my information is now twenty four hours out of date, but uh, there there was just a. Uh, he's asking. He's asking if you're English and uh, if you're hot. My my father's law is asking, "Are you English? Is she English and is she hot?" She's a, one is yes, a, very both American. Both very attractive. <laughs> No, they were both American. Americanki, очень красивые. They're both good-looking, very American. Ah. Oh. Georgi uh, is quite a ladies' man. He's, he's telling a racist joke about the English and Irish because he thinks uh, Claire is English. Doesn't matter. He's, a, he's an old sailor. He's a he's a he's a he's a scoundrel. My father-in-law is great. He sounds it. I he's wish fun. I could converse with him in his native language. Unfortunately, well, you, you'll meet him. We, we'll be in Paris uh, soon yeah, enough. No. You, you How long? Will, him? When, when will you be here? We'll be there tomorrow. Oh right. All We're right. flying in the morning. So, anyways, okay. um, uh, Odessa. Uh, Odessa, uh, we, we left with Georgi Semyonovich uh, yesterday morning. It took an entire day to get from Odessa to Bucharest in the middle of a war. We had a woman as our fixer driving because I knew, first of all, to get through the border, you need a woman. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you need, um, uh, it, it's, it's easier when a woman is driving because the, the Ukrainian soldiers at every checkpoint, they kept stopping us uh, uh, when it was just men in the car. So when they see a woman behind the wheel, they don't actually stop her to check the paperwork. So right. we breezed through 10 or 12 checkpoints, uh, each one of which could have taken between five and 10 minutes. So you multiply 10 checkpoints by 10 minutes, and that's an hour and a half or two hours extra to the trip. So who was the woman uh, who was driving you? We had a, we had a, a woman that we, we hired, a, a right. fixer. Right. If anyone needs a fixer, Anna's very good. Right. Um. So it took it took you twelve hours, thirteen hours to get Uh, you know, it, it took it. We left at five. We left the house at six in the morning. We got into the hotel around ten in the evening. So there was a car to the border, another car to a town, ferry, a bus to another place, another ferry, and then uh, a, a train to Bucharest, and then a taxi home. Um, was the trip otherwise was it was it uneventful apart from the? Um, well, just tons of you, just tons of Ukrainians. I'm for the third time in a month. I'm in a, this wave of, of Ukrainians. This wave of Ukrainian refugees has gotten smaller, but still people coming over the border. Still, uh, still every train station in Bucharest uh, and in the three Romanian cities that I I spent time in yesterday full of Ukrainians. 
Russian and Ukrainian speech everywhere. Ukrainians coming up to each other, asking each other for help. Each it's one, one of the biggest uh, migrations migration in history. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing it's an amazing time. It's a, it's horrible, but it's it's really interesting. Georgis Milic, I'm doing a podcast. You can't talk now. <laughs> yeah, I know. We'll call we get, we'll call your your daughter later. Yes, afterwards. Uh, Georgis Semyonovic, we saw lots of Ukrainians. Many Ukrainians saw visited the route in Romania. Many Ukrainians were. He says, "You saw yourself." So what are you asking for? You saw. He's like, "We how are you asking me? You saw it." What's the culture like among uh, among all the refugees on the road? Is it a lot of no, переселенцев. Мы говорим про переселенцев из Украины. Refugees were. Беженцы. Да, беженцы. Это беженцы. Беженцы, да, беженцы. He says refugees, but you saw yourself. Why are you asking? You saw. Uh, he's saying, hey, you know how many nationalities there are coming out of Ukraine? There weren't all ethnic Ukrainians. He got a little mixed up. Uh, he, I said, how many Ukrainian refugees? But he was like, there weren't other people. Georgi Semyonovich is yelling at me that, that Ukraine isn't only full of Ukrainians. There are Moldovans. The Moldovans. He's now Gaguzi, Bulgarians. And especially in this region, and Russians, and we all live together. He's now just. He's now just uh, uh, I'm going to stop translating because Georgi Simonovich is getting very excited. He, he's getting very excited. Anyways, and all live together in reasonable harmony. Yeah, but but then then he gets off into uh, uh, into conspiracy theories. He told me we were drunk last night. He told me that that he believes in a world government conspiracy. And he also touchingly added, and I know you're part of it. That is touching. That's how you know you've really you've really arrived with your your father-in-law. And, <laughs> and also, and also, uh, I, there you was a uh, one of my Twitter fans. One of my Twitter fans mm-hmm. was a was an uh, Italian volunteer. Once we get off the train station, mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, a guy who I never met before, who, but who was one of my Twitter fans, uh, was like, I just saw you on CNN. Can I help you with anything? And my father is very impressed that uh, it, it, in the refugee center, a guy I'd never met before was one of my fans who wanted to help me. That's very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So your your credit's really gone up with him. Hey, my credit's really gone up, though. <laughs> yeah. Georgi Semyonovich is like, what are you, were you a KGB agent talking about me on CNN? What are you doing? <laughs> Caitlin, how's your family doing? Uh, Caitlin, how's your family? Uh, sorry? Sorry? Okay, what tell us about that? your family. Ah, we are fine. Um, so we are all staying in Chernivtsi. Uh, my aunt-in-law and uh, cousin, little cousin, left for Poland uh, about a week after the war began. And uh, they've been there since. Um, but I, I mean, life is, is continuing as usual in Chernivtsi. The only thing is we have officially around like 80,000 registered refugees and uh, that probably means we have around a hundred thousand refugees in Chernivtsi, which is like half the population. How big is the city, yeah, half the population. So it's about two hundred thousand usually. 
uh, around 250,000 usually. Right. So it's it's quite insane that there's so many people here. And I, I jokingly told one journalist the way I the reason I noticed this because we have a lot of these coffee to go stands, uh, and and now you have to wait at every single one of them for at least five minutes because people are just standing around and buying coffee and they don't really know what to do with but their where lives. Where are they staying? Are they staying with anyone who they know there? Uh, well, yeah, we have, uh, you know, some people are finding places through friends or even strangers. We have some refugees from Kharkiv mm -hmm. that uh, live in the apartment where my husband and I used to live. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, like the neighbor of my uh, grandfather-in-law. Uh, her son works for IT company where these refugees work. Uh, so we had never met them before and they just kind of found us. Um, but also a lot of people are living in like, uh, like gyms, you know, like this kind of typical refugee setup with the uh, sleeping bags. It's not, it's not a, temp a permanent situation, but we also have a lot of these, um, very old, uh, like Soviet era, um, hotels that nobody has been staying in for years. There's one called Jeremosh, mm -hmm. uh, which was quite famous when it was open during Soviet times. But it's laying dormant for like 10 years and uh, the new owners were going to turn it into like some hot spot. But now it's uh, home to 300 refugees or there's like 300 rooms that are filled with refugees. Right. So um, the mayor has promised to like even build some like kind of semi long term housing. But I have no idea how, how they will be able to do that. Uh, Chernivtsi is kind of a bureaucratic mess sometimes, so it, right. it's absolutely a miracle that we have people like functioning here because uh, we are the smallest oblast in Ukraine. And uh, if you take that into consideration with how many refugees are here, it's it's quite it's quite incredible because our public infrastructure is still stuck in the Soviet times. You have this. Um, trolley buses that look like they're barely uh, barely surviving as they make their way down the street. Uh, this beautiful Austro-Hungarian architecture we have in the city center is like cr uh, crumbling. Sometimes like pieces of it will fall on your head when you're walking down the street if you're not careful. So I, I hope that all these people from Kiev and Kharkiv that are used to much nicer cities will kind of inspire our city government to make our city a little nicer because it was really like um, a jewel of uh, of Ukraine back in the day, and it just gets progressively worse with every year. So we'll see. It sounds that's an interesting dynamic because usually people don't think of the refugees as being the people who you have to um, spruce up the city to impress. Oh yeah, <laughs> but like, I, it sounds like an interesting an inversion of the usual sociological dynamic of having a refugee influx. Do you think it's bringing out the best in people? Are people are people um, rising to the occasion or is it just adding extra stress to an already stressed life uh i can answer your question with yes and no but just to say in terms of like uh, status i mean i've seen more bugattis and uh, sports cars i don't even know the names i've never seen so many nice cars in chernivtsi even if you look on chernivtsi like tiktok for example people are making videos like this person is from kiev this person is from Kharkiv. our uh, our people even my mother-in-law said to me uh, she, she noticed like uh, in, here in Chernivtsi we have this bazaar, Kalinka. It's like very typical like post-Soviet open air bazaar that was uh, where people made their sometimes millions in the 90s when we had people even from like Moldova, Romania coming here to buy contrabanda. 
And uh, this is where people in Chernivtsi do their shopping. You get like uh, Turkey or Chinese manufactured Chanel uh, knockoffs. But uh, my, my mother-in-law said she noticed people uh, were from Kiev when they are dressed much more nicely because there is, uh, you know, real like stores. And we don't have them in Chernivtsi. People go to Romania if they want to buy nice clothes. But uh, overall, I mean, we've had some problems where uh, people are like double, triple, quadrupling their rent, uh, trying to take advantage and, and make an extra buck off of refugees. And the mayor uh, no, set up a hotline to, to report such people. But uh, overall, I think there's just incredible amount of solidarity. There's a lot of like uh, volunteer groups on Telegram that are being run by young people, even younger than me. Uh, people are getting, there's a, like collection centers where we're, there's just everything you can imagine is being brought for soldiers, medicine, uh, headlamps, any, any other boots. There's the shortage of boots. Uh, for soldiers and and people are finding these things. They're even ordering them from like diaspora. Well, the United States center on my block, and I'm in Paris. Ah, oh, really? Yeah, there's a oh, center yeah. right outside my building, and I, I don't know whether they're getting the kinds of things that you actually need. But I know that there's a lot of goodwill, and people are trying to bring them things that you might need. Oh yeah. Well, here I, I was at the collection center a few times and I saw they really have a lot of stuff. Uh, they, I think they even turn you away if, if you bring stuff that they don't need. But uh, it's it's been incredible. Overall, I would say that Ukrainians are really stepping up. I, I never saw such solidarity before in, in, in time of war. I mean, I never lived through a war, so I, I can't even say. But it's it's been really heartwarming, especially when you're have these hard days like uh, when when this news of Bucha for example was on the TV it was it was so incredibly demoralizing so to, to be reminded of what people are doing and uh, in city center there's uh, Romanian Turkish Italian Danish uh, like relief workers giving out food uh, so I mean Chernivtsi has become this beautiful kind of like safe haven where uh, people are really trying to to maintain a normal life yeah, I hope I hope you can feel in Ukraine that the world the world wants to shower you in as much goodness as you've been showered in hatred. Everyone feels this. Everyone yeah, we, we do. I think I think the world is the world has really done a lot, and and I think Ukrainians have noticed. I mean, Ukraine has more uh, soft power. Some a lot of my friends have said than any other country in the world right now. It's just just a remark. It's just a remarkable story of solidarity. I think the, the the world is getting as much uh, out of Ukraine as there as the Ukrainians are getting from us in, in terms of spiritual yeah, sustenance. I do, I do too. I think it's it, it's been in some ways very good for the world to see that there's a, there's something that's very clearly evil, and this isn't relative at all. It's not postmodern at all. Evil is a very real thing, and consequently, so is goodness and virtue. That's right. But, and the yeah. resilience, the coherence, the, the just the, the, the tremendous uh, virtues that the that the majority of the Ukrainian population has shown towards each other, towards towards uh, I mean, just even like there's just a lack of killing of of Russian POWs for the most part. Uh, you know, just tr tremendous qualities are being shown by the Ukrainian political nation towards everybody and. and yeah to everybody and it, it's just uh, I, I think from Zelensky on down it's just awe-inspiring that's why the entire world is just looking at this with just tremendous reverence because we're still capable of reverence in the face of 
displays of tremendous quality, which is what we're getting from the Ukrainians. It is, it's a really good omen for Ukraine's future, because of course, this is going to be the Ukrainian origin story. Obviously, Ukraine goes back much, much longer, but this is really the origin story of, of an independent political nation in Europe. Exactly. Yeah. And the story, the origin story is going to be one of, of immense goodness and heroism. That's a good way to start. It's a good thing for people to live up to. And I also, I also think it's going to revitalize the, the, the liberal democratic, I don't want to call it center, but just the liberal democratic consensus or whatever you want to call it. If, if, the, if Ukrainians were going to fall, I think this would, this would be the victory of uh, a kind of illiberalism over, over the liberal democratic world order, whatever we, whatever we want to call it, the post-world order. The liberal order, the liberal consensus, whatever you want to call it, the the, the good, certainly, the West, the golden billion. Reinforce the idea that it's just a bunch of decadent, um, decadent, declining, feuding, bickering, self navel gazing. Nothing in common, yeah. And and you know, I think that the greatest example of this. Uh, in a sense, is like what the Ukrainian cultural sphere has been doing during this time. I mean, you have so many writers, like we think of like writers or uh, musicians or painters as rather decadent types who are sitting around drinking wine and debating theory or something like this. But uh, how an incredible amount of them have taken up arms, even this... Um, an extraordinary outpouring and a very powerful one. Yeah, even uh, Artem Chipai, whose story was featured in The New Yorker recently, uh, the first Ukrainian story to be published uh, in translation in the print edition, by the way. I mean, he is a self-proclaimed pacifist. He is the former Ukrainian translator of Noam Chomsky when he was like a naive young socialist, in his own words. And he's still a pacifist, but he's in the army right now because he, he felt you know, there's no other choice but to defend the country. So... It's absolutely incredible that every single Ukrainian understands that they have a role to play in this uh, building of a modern Ukrainian state after uh, after invasion. And it's it's just it's incredible. I can't even describe what it's like to watch it here in real time. I think that's actually a great transition to what I would love to talk about with Kate. Uh, by the way, uh, can I just can I just play act at, at being uh, a modern man? Mm-hmm. And and uh, ga- gallantly play off my my father-in-law and his old school sailor ways. Uh, he he made me show him pictures of both of you while you were talking to make sure you were both good looking. <laughs> and he con- he concurs that you're both very lovely. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> yes, you are, I think I think it's true. I think you're. I think you both are very lovely. Thank uh, you. But anyways. Uh, he's 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 uh, absolutely indomitable. My my father-in-law. He's very funny, um, and uh, very charming. Uh, what was I saying? So Kate and I published about a month ago a uh, an article in Tablet Magazine, going through six different writers. I, and I what they're... Mm-hmm. Yes, I read that. It's very interesting. Yeah, I think I think it was a good run up or or rundown of. The various, I mean, there are many more interesting young writers and, and not so young writers in Ukraine, but that's a good, that's a good selection of what's going on now in contemporary Ukrainian literature and being translated into, into uh, English. Gergis Simon was just singing over there. I don't know if you hear this. Do you hear this? I hear him laughing. <laughs> I hear laughing. Uh, he is laughing. Yeah. He, he's, uh, he's laughing and singing in the, in the corner. Uh, he has a great laugh. <laughs> 
he's he's a, why do you think 27 year old girls at the border poster are, are flirting with him <laughs> it's true it's true um what was i saying so i think i think we should talk about the way that culture is being shaped by the war i think we should talk about the way that the the war has affected writers and artists and the intelligentsia and i think i think that could be our added value to the ba- debates but that's something that kate and i both write a lot about and something that uh i think goes well culture is often not not written about as much as it should be so i think that's something we should talk about or could talk about okay mm-hmm. let's talk about it tell me about it kate kate talk <laughs> well, as I said uh, just a few minutes ago, what I think is really incredible about Ukrainian writers in particular, is they're not like passive observers in Ukrainian society. Uh, and uh, one author, for example, that we mentioned in the tablet piece, um, Stanislav Isayev, if your uh, listeners are not familiar with his work, it's absolutely required. If you want to know about Ukraine and understand Ukraine, you need to read his work. He uh, is a famous journalist who was uh, who is from Donetsk, and he was reporting in Donetsk after it became occupied by the forces of this so-called Bayaner. And he wanted to uh, basically spread the truth about what was really happening there until he was uh, captured. He was tortured and he was sent to Isolatia, this prison uh, which is still operating today, as I, as I understand, where they... Um, uh, Ukrainian civilians are uh, routinely uh, tortured, uh, raped, murdered, and it's it's a, a living nightmare on earth. And uh, according to reports, uh, such places are being set up in occupied Kherson right now, and probably uh, other places. And uh, it's really just like symbolic of this, uh, what this Ruski Mir represents. So uh, Stanislav Isayev, um his writing before he was captured was uh, this collection was translated and published by uh, Harvard's Ukrainian Research Institute. And you can read this now. Uh, and soon his torture camp on Paradise Street in Ukrainian, it's Svitli Shlach, the bright path. Uh, it has been translated and it will be published soon, but I can't say where or by who. Uh, but this is about his time in Izolatia. So uh, he he is really a uh, really important writer because he was affected really directly by this war. He is in, in the Teoa Barona, the territorial defense in Kiev right now. And uh, yeah, he, he's absolutely incredible. I mean, uh, his writing before the start of the war is completely different. It's very, uh, I, I was reading it, uh, he, he wrote in Russian before. Uh, he had very kind of, not flowery, but very kind of eloquent language, like long sentences, uh, very rich in literary and philosophical references. You can tell he's extremely well read. Uh, His first book was about uh, kind of like auto fiction about a young guy who who hates his life in Donetsk and uh, like a bookish guy who dreams of joining the French Foreign Legion, which he tried to do himself as in his youth and he uh, didn't succeed in joining, but he he wrote this beautiful book about it. And uh, no, as amongst us, who amongst us has not tried to join the French Foreign Legion as a young man? This is a normal thing for your romantic young man. I wouldn't. My grandfather did join the French Foreign Legion. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so he's most mostly writes nonfiction, right? 
Uh, yeah, but he, he has written plays and poems, but uh, as I, I interviewed him last year, and as he said, the, the guy who wrote all of that is dead, in his words, uh, because after what he lived through, I mean, he, they kind of, in his uh, as he said, stole his words from them, so, so he can't really write in the same way anymore. And uh, I, I really, I, he's one of those writers that I'm rooting for. I want him to have, find peace. I want him to write more plays and poetry again because he's he has incredible mind. And uh, we, we didn't mention Oleg Sentsov in, in our piece, but he is another one who was in prison for five years. He is also in the Ukrainian army. Uh, he, he was posting on Facebook that he learned how to fire a grenade launcher, to dig trenches. So it's like, it, it must be incredibly cathartic for him in a sense. I mean, it's a nightmare that the country was invaded, but this man who was uh, almost died from hunger strike gets to kind of fight back. Oleg Sensov, he, he was the director from Crimea. Uh, and he got uh, arrested at, for protesting against annexation of Crimea. He spent five years in a Russian penal colony. He went on hunger strike. Is he the one who went on the longest hunger strike in history? Yes, yes. That's why I know his name, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, these are extreme examples of uh, Ukrainian authors who were really tied to the current political crisis. But... Um, I mean, you have an incredible amount of writers who, uh, like, like Oleg and uh, Stanislav, who are from the east of Ukraine, who were writing in Russian previously, but made the conscious decision to switch to Ukrainian. Uh, not just them, but Volodymyr Rafayenko from Donetsk, his book uh, Mondi Green was published by Harvard University Press recently. It's also kind of like an autofiction about an internally displaced person who ends up in Kyiv and this psychological uh, kind of phantasmagoric uh, interweaving uh, moments with the past of Donetsk, with the war of now and uh, how his like identity changes because of his... Um, his predicament. Uh, Rafayenko actually chose to write in Ukrainian after uh, Sashko Boychenko, famous critic from Chernivtsi, ridiculed him in a column uh, and other uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainian writers. So he, he was so hurt by it that he made the decision to start speaking in Ukrainian. But uh, there's others like Luba Yakimchuk, Olena Stiashkina, who was published, her op-ed was in CNN recently. Uh, in William Blacker's translation, I mean, uh, just really incredible amount who are who are really uh, taking this Ukrainian identity to a whole new level. And Ukrainian writers in the West, for example, like Roman Malinovsky, uh, he's from Ivano-Frankivsk. Uh, he said in an interview with me that he's incredibly proud of all of these writers. Uh, that kind of shows, like, they're like, you know, Russian propaganda wants to show this kind of. Um, like uh, the so-called discrimination against Russian speakers, I, I've never seen it really. And uh, the fact that you writers in the West of Ukraine are supporting their colleagues from the East for, for making that very difficult decision. I mean, you have people like Andrei Kurkov who still writes in Russian because he says it's too hard for him to write in Ukrainian. Uh, but a lot of writers have made that switch. And uh, yeah, I mean- I mean, Tatars, are they writing in Tatar? Uh, Crimean Tatars. Uh, yeah. I'm not as familiar with uh, Crimean Tatar writers, unfortunately, but I do know that there is like an annual uh, contest uh, to promote Ukrainian Tatar, uh, Crimean Tatar writers. Mm -hmm. They exist. Uh, I think Vidavnitsko uh, Starohorleva, this old lion publishing house, the biggest one in Ukraine, did publish a collection of Crimean Tatar writers. 
in Ukrainian translation. So uh, yeah, the, Lattis, Ukrainian... are you familiar with that literature at all? Lattis, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, sorry, uh, ladies, can you? I can hear you. Hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? I was just. Yep. I, uh, I, I, am I unmuted now? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was the question again? Are you familiar with Crimean Tatar literature at all? Um, I I read one Crimean Tatar novel in translation. I don't remember which language I read it in. I uh, uh to my great uh, uh to my great shame, I'm not. I don't. I don't know if there is. Person. I don't know anything about the literature. I don't know if it's a worthwhile literature. If it's if it's interesting at all, I was just curious. I uh, yeah, yeah. I it's there's not a lot of translation out of Crimean Tatar into. Uh, into anything really. I mean, into Ukrainian is really where you, the only language, as far as I know, you're going to get it in. Um, there, 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 there was a, a, there. I mean, there was a uh, push to get Crimean Tatars uh, more uh, representation in in uh, in the Ukrainian cultural space, and there was a, a Crimean Tatar film by uh, a young a young filmmaker. Uh, well, there, I mean, there there are there are a lot of films about the the deportation of the Crimean Tatars. Uh, you know, mostly they're bad. I watch them all, but they're they're most. I mean, they're 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 not. Uh, uh, they're not great. I mean, Artem Satabaylev's film filmographies is okay, um, and there was a Crimean Tatar film film at Cannes a few years ago. I don't know if you know this. It was by um, uh, it was it was called Homeward. It was a pretty good film, not not you know not wonderful, but not you know pretty good film. It was uh, directed by uh, Nariman Aliyev. It was a, it was about a father who uh, who was traveling with his son to transport the body of his uh, oldest son who had been killed fighting for the Ukrainian army. It was a 2019 drama. It was pretty good. I was at the premiere at, at Cannes at the film festival. Uh, it got uh, nominated for uh, on certain regard directing prize, but didn't win. So there are there are uh, attempts to bring more financing for Ukrainian state film agency and Ukrainian arts agencies to Crimean Tatar uh, uh, writers and and poets and especially filmmakers. I don't know how 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 successful that uh, that has been outside of film where it has been successful. Um, it's, it's the plight, their plight in particular is, is it profoundly moves me. They have all people do not deserve this. Um, it's very sad. It's extraordinarily sad. I mean, they, they, they got their peninsula back. I mean, they were all deported. They got their peninsula back mm -hmm. and then bam, they're right back with the Russians. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and they know they're never, they know they're never going to. I mean, anything could happen now. Now that that, that, that Putin did this, I just so. had to ask, do you think there's any chance? Well, I mean, it'll be it'll be more difficult for the for the uh, for the Ukrainians to get Crimea back than it will be to get Donbass back. Yeah, for all sorts of reasons. In fact, you know, it's it's been annexed. It's now uh, an oblast within the Russian Federation. They moved one of the. Uh, military okrugs there it's been militarized it's been nuclearized it's been fortified they're moving you, russian ethnic yeah. Russian yeah and, the, and they're moving the the crimean tatars out there they share the populations falling slowly from 
around 14%. Now it's down to 12% likely, although I don't think anyone actually knows just what the numbers average. are. Just an average. It, it yeah. is an average. I mean, they're the indigenous people of that peninsula. I mean, they, you know, so I, I just, I don't, I don't see how it could happen. Although with this war, there could be any number of instances of a chain reaction domino effect with the Russian Federation collapsing under under its own contradictions and and the loss uh, of its economy with lots of different regions going off in different directions which from case, your lips to god's ears <laughs> well yes but, I mean, but I just, there's a lot of danger involved Russian in that citizen, too claire claire was claire was there with me at the historic burning of my russian passport and i think i just broke russian federation law again by calling for the the, the dissolution of russian federation which at this <laughs> point actually i, I I'm, I'm happy to do by the way, if, uh, and peaceful is illusion. Whatever FS, whatever FSB uh, case files are there for me, I, 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 uh, oops, I've done it again, as Britney Spears said. <laughs> I'm calling for the dissolution of the Russian Empire. Yeah, we're all praying for that. We're all praying for that. Praying for that to happen without nukes going hither and yon, and without terrible violence. Mm-hmm. By the way, in terms, if we speak about uh, Russia and KGB, I, I'm actually reading a book uh, about Vasil Stus, the famous uh, Ukrainian dissident writer who died in the Russian penal colony in 1985. Uh, Vasil Stus. I, Vasil Stus. I'm afraid it, I I'm I don't know the name, but that doesn't mean that. Uh, I don't know if Russell Stu's ever been translated. Has he? He has, yeah. So uh, he, I, I, I would definitely recommend his work, Claire. I think you'd find him fascinating. He was um, uh, a dissident in the late Soviet era. He died in a penal colony in 1985 in Perm. And uh, his uh, son, Dimitro Stu's, wrote a biography about him that was published by Ibedem. Uh, it's part of their Ukrainian Voices series, and it's quite incredible. I didn't know that uh, he was writing a new uh, poetry collection when he was in the penal colony, and apparently yes. the Soviet uh, authorities uh, refused to release it. So this unpublished work of the one of the most genius modern Ukrainian writers, who would probably still be alive, uh, Claire, you might find this interesting. His uh, court-assigned lawyer was Viktor Medvedchuk, actually. Oh, but this, is, but this is an important. This is very important, and we and you know, go ahead, please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, Vlad can explain the catharsis uh, and, and the joy of Ukrainians when Medvedchuk, uh, they called it Stus's revenge when he was arrested. Uh, but apparently, rumor has it that Stus's uh, poetry is uh, locked up in a KGB archive somewhere in deep in Russia. So uh, if, if we see the peaceful end of the Russian Federation, quote unquote, uh, we might get introduced to a lot of new Ukrainian poetry. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Uh, my 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 rambunctious father-in-law is asking if the Romanians took back Chernowitz yet. He's he's trying to cause uh, he's trying to cause uh, mischief at that corner of the room. Georgi Simeonovich. No, Georgi Simeonovich, you're not going to take Chernowitz. Don't worry about it. Uh, so uh, as it happened, uh, Victor Stus, who died at the age of I believe forty-seven or forty-eight. Uh, 547. He was uh, he was a dissident, and he was uh, repressed by the by the uh, Soviets. And as as the brilliant herself, brilliant Kate is now saying, 
his court-appointed lawyer, who's working against him the entire time, who was a real jerk, was a young careerist apparatchik face of uh, uh, officialdom who was, in fact, working against his release. And his name was Midvachuk, Victor Midvachuk. He defended him during his trial, a young Victor Midvachuk in his, in his mid-20s at the time or late-20s. Uh, you know, in the closing speech, Medvedchuk he stated that uh, all of Stu's crimes deserve punishment. Uh, you know, it's just really nasty. Yeah, he's he, defense he lawyer. An, he was a horrible lawyer. Yeah, he was he, horrible person, horrible lawyer. You know, he his his request to get another public defender allocated to him were dismissed, and. Uh, he 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 knew that uh, Mitvichuk was a Komsomol type guy, and mm-hmm. representative of the Soviet government, probably an, an agent, and he didn't want him defending him. And Mitvichuk did everything possible in order to 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 get this man put into prison, who he was supposed to be defending. So that's what Mitvichuk was always like, even as a young guy, already in his mid twenties, when he put into prison personally the most famous dissident poet of the time, and. Now that he's been run out of Ukrainian politics, he was the leader of the pro-Russian opposition and a member of Putin's own family. Georgi Semyonovich is yelling from poems at your fingertips. Um, Let me look. Georgi Semyonovich wants to pipe in about Medvedchuk from the other side of of the of the room. Jesus Christ, Georgi Semyonovich, we don't. He's, he's yelling about Putin and, and, and Medvedchuk and money. Uh, and he says, to, okay, Medvedchuk, Medvedchuk, let's just go to bed. Um, so let me, I'm looking for poems, translations. I, I have uh, on Epophany, we published uh, some of his poems. I, I have it right here. I think you should, would you, would you read that out aloud to us? Uh, it's quite long, so I'll only read part of it. But yeah, I think that'd be great. So people get yeah, a sense so of his work. Uh, or English. English, English. <laughs> well, if, if you can read a little bit in Ukrainian and then English so we can hear it too. Oh, uh, I don't have the Ukrainian. I will, I will butcher it. I have, uh, when, I, when I speak Ukrainian, uh, people in uh, like Aptiakos or restaurants say to me, Možno Moldavskoyu, jakšo vam zručniši divčina. Like, we can speak Moldavian with you. <laughs> That's horrible. They're like, they're saying, you want to speak Surzik? Like, we can speak Surzik. No, they're That's trying horrible. to... I had another person tell me once that uh, they thought I was from diaspora because I clearly understood everything, but I have terrible pronunciation. <laughs> no, that's char- that's great. That's charming. That's quite charming. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, uh, I'm a I'm a native Russian speaker myself, so I will not. I, uh, I although I I have uh, more Ukrainian than Kate does. I I I will also not do disservice to the language in uh, trying to do a poetic voice over. Um, over over uh, the thing so let's 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 stick to the to the uh, english translation since we don't have any ukrainian speakers on hand let's hear the poem sure, sure. so this uh, we published on epophany my my journal it's called i wandered through the city of my youth and it's translated from ukrainian by bogdan tokarski and uh, william blacker i wandered around the city of my youth vainly searching in the new blocks for yesterday's buildings, parks, and paths, for familiar patterns on pediments, geography is lost. 
The city had become prettier and grown. New avenues had appeared, new hotels, streets, monuments, stadiums and trees. Yet not a single familiar face in the crowd, not a single face that would evoke your vanished youth. I hoped at least to run into myself, right where the fountain flowed, hemmed by artificial marble, all in vain, nothing, disappeared without a trace. The light high rises took off into the sky and you so very small next to them, not visible even to yourself, let alone to passers-by. A taxi driver stopped his car and walked up to the fountain, which sprinkled water on a gentle, unfamiliar poplar. He washed his hands, got out his handkerchief, carefully dried his palms, then got behind the wheel and sped off, leaving a little cloud of dust behind. Watching him drive away, I realized for the first time, I failed at life. That's it. <laughs> yeah. When did he write that? Uh, this, I do not have the year on me, but, uh, sorry, 1965. So quite, quite a while before he was imprisoned. Yeah, yeah. In his 20s, as opposed to his 40s. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. He was incredible. He would, he yeah, would still be alive today, yeah. probably. He would be an older man. He would be... Yeah. Um, I mean, he would be 37 years plus 47. So how would be, I mean, he'd be, he'd be in his, he'd be in his 80s, 70s, late 70s. He died Sorry? in 1985 in a Russian yeah. camp, a Soviet penal camp in Russia. And what did he die of? Uh, he was on a hunger strike. He's, um, so his Ukrainian authors are, have a history of going on hunger strikes against Russian aggression. And imprisonments, and here, no, there, there are some uh, rumors. No one knows exactly what happened, but probably one of the guards roughed him up, and this is what is suspected. Uh, the first chapter of this book by his son—it's absolutely heart-wrenching because he, uh, Dimitrostus, details how he and his mother, uh, in the early days of Ukrainian uh, independent. Republic were trying to get Stus and other Ukrainian dissidents uh, bodies transferred back to Ukraine. And uh, he, he had to open the coffin to see his father, which he hadn't had the chance to do because uh, as he and his mother were, were traveling to Perm uh, from Ukraine, you know, there's this like orthodox tradition, you, you say goodbye to the deceased, there's the open casket. And the Soviet authorities just dropped him into the dirt and, and buried him. And they said, sorry, you should have come earlier. Uh, so he only got to say goodbye to his father a few years later in, no, in the coffin after he exhumed his body. And um, uh, apparently there was a shoe like in, in, the, in the coffin near his neck. So probably he, he suggests that the, the guard burying him threw a shoe at him just to kind of like disrespect the body. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite awful what happens. But uh, Stus had like... Um, a hero's welcome in death, like tens of thousands of people lined the streets of Kiev to welcome him in the early 90s when his body was brought back. People who didn't even know who he was, but as uh, Dimitro Stus uh, details in this book, uh, it, it was like one of the first moments in, in Ukrainian independence where people were not afraid anymore. So even though they had no idea who Stus was, they wanted to welcome him because it was such a liberating feeling right. to, to rebel against this Soviet history that they just rejected. So, so Kate, Kate explain, explain, come full circle and explain what, what Medvedchuk's uh, being arrested 
uh, and paraded on TV means in terms of the closing of that chapter. Oh, God. I, I mean, Twitter was an absolute ball that day. <laughs> if you followed Ukrainian Twitter, I mean, people were uh, like basically saying it was uh, Vasil Struz's revenge, that he is smiling in heaven or wherever he is in the afterlife, uh, some afterlife. And I mean, it, it was a great closure because, um, as I said, like Struz would probably still be alive if he hadn't had Viktor Medvedchuk as his lawyer. Actually, uh, another journalist, Vaktan Kipiani, he wrote a book about the Vasil Stu's trial where he talks about Medvedchuk's uh, guilt in, in Stu's uh, imprisonment. And Medvedchuk, this was uh, not too long before the start of the invasion. This is about like a, a year, year or two before the invasion. Yeah, yeah. He uh, basically sued Kipiani and brought him to court. And a lot of people thought, oh, God, this corrupt court system, Kipiani is fucked. The, the, sorry, I shouldn't curse. Uh, the, the, the publisher is, is going to go bankrupt. But uh, surprisingly, the courts ruled in Kipiani's uh, favor and that of the publisher. And everyone was shocked that, that Medvedchuk lost. Uh, so the truth about Stu's got out. So it was kind of a nice uh, teaser for what was to come. So karma, karma came for him Car and, uh, karma is a U ukrainian ukrainian poet destroying a pro-russian absolutely. Uh, yes. absolutely yes all right um i am going to include links to everyone we've spoken about it would be i think most of them are in the article that you two wrote together right a lot uh, of them not, are a yeah lot a lot are, but not everyone i don't think I don't know. I'll go through it. And if I have any questions, I'll, I'll send you an email to ask so that I can. I, I wish we had talked about a lot of other writers, actually. We'll we talk do, about them. Go ahead. We could do a, a follow up on, you know, Andrakovich is not in there. Uh, there Andrakovich's daughter is not in there. Tons of Ukrainian I, young women writers are not in there. I had yeah, I had an event with Andrukhovich recently with the, for the Quebec Writers Union. And as soon as we started, there was the air raid alarm. And uh, Andrukhovich uh, basically went to a shelter and uh, he was in, in darkness, except for the light from his glasses. And he spoke so kind of alluringly in English. Uh, he has this drawl uh, in, in any language, but it's, it, it was quite interesting. And he... Uh, he ends like saying, uh, thank you, everyone. It was unforgettable. I loved every moment. <laughs> like very kind of uh, romantic sounding almost. And uh, yeah, he's incredible. I mean, we could recorded. talk just for an hour about Andrukovic. Did you record it? Yes, yes, I'll send you the link. Yes, please do, please do. I, I included in, in my first book, From Odessa of Love, a long conversation that I had over a liquid lunch in 2017-18 with Andrukovic. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, just to plug both Andrukovic and my own, my own first book, Odessa of, uh, From Odessa with Love. And uh, uh, people should read his book, uh, Moskoviad. It's one of his early novels about a Ukrainian writer who is in Moscow at the Gorky Institute when the Soviet Union collapses. And it's one day in the life of this Ukrainian author who is uh, like uh, drunk on drugs, uh, sleeping with random women, getting hunted by KGB. And it's like this amazing phantasmagoric uh, allegory for the break between Ukraine and Russia. And I won't spoil the ending, but it's absolutely incredible. 
who was the uh, Kate? Who is the English publisher of that of that novel? Uh, Sporting Duville. It's I think it's it's some very small uh, publisher in Brooklyn or somewhere in New York, but it's translated by Vitaly Chernetsky. Oh, that should be that should be it should be a, a an excellent transition, I guess. Yeah, I mean Vitaly is great. He is one of the best Ukrainian translators in English today. That's right. Uh, is that a, is that a recent translation? No, no, no. It's like a few years ago. Maybe even like, like ten. Ten years ago, like ten years ago, because I remember. Well, it's not recent. Let's say. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. That's a pedantic point. We shouldn't be pedantic. That's that's for the academics. You and I are are, <laughs> are poets. A, a poetic translator and a, a journalist writer, such as myself, should not compete with the academics in the realm exactly. of tedious pedantry. Exactly. Uh, tedious pedantry. It's not for us. That's for the academics. Um, okay. So you're going to be well, back in Paris tomorrow, right? I will be back in Paris tomorrow. You want to? I mean, you can. You can. Uh, you can see me at some point. Oh, like I mean, father-in-law. <laughs> yeah, I, it, he's amusing. He's amusing. Um, He's very amusing. How are you, basically? Uh, are you asking Kate or me? You. Uh, you know, I've you know, been in and out of Ukraine. I've had two very intense months, extremely intense. Yeah. A lot of work, a lot of writing, 150 TV and radio appearances where I'm trying to explain to things what's going on. Um, you know, just I was just in Donetsk the other day. Just this week, I've been in Odessa, Moldova, Dnipro, Donetsk, uh, uh, Rubezhne, uh, Romania, Bucharest. That's just this week. You must be just tired. You know, I, I get off on this, but, you know, I, I like it. This is my life. This is my lifestyle. That's how mm -hmm. I live. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you do, one does get tired. If, you, if you're on the move literally every day, it, it's like radiation. It, mm -hmm. uh, it uh, does seep into your body and then you just your body says okay enough of this yeah i did have a i, I did have a, a slight acid reflex attack after being close to some bombing in donetsk so you know the body the body says whoa this is not great for you yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. and this this like acute stress you really i, I was describing it to someone like uh, I, I've had medical procedures where I've had to undergo anesthesia and then you wake up in horrible pain after. And I, I described the first days of the war like that. Like you you wake up from anesthesia, you don't really know what's going on and then it hits you and you're just in horrible pain. And then, uh, you know, what follows is this dull ache that can possibly stay with you forever. And you're just like, day what? 62, three, I don't even know anymore. And you... Like you can't, uh, you can't take vacation from it. Like if, if this affects your life, like it is with you and every waking moment. Sure. I, I do take, actually, I do take a, a vacations. I'm in this continuously in uh, in obsessive mode. And then I just, uh, uh, after two, three weeks, four weeks, I just turn off for four to five days and I do things and I, and I watch the news a little bit and, but I just, I'll, I'll read a novel or something, but I, every, I, I work obsessively for three, four weeks and then, and then just my body says no, and then I'll either sleep a lot. In the war zone, you know, in the when you're on the war zone, I either sleep continuously or not at all. My body, that's what happens to me. I'll either sleep 14 hours a day for three, four days, and then I'll go for three weeks sleeping three, four hours. Um, I don't know how I don't know how you are, Kate. 
Um, I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, in the early days of the war, I couldn't sleep. I would wake up at like four or five in the morning and check the news, absolutely horrified because I have a lot of friends in the east of Ukraine, uh, especially in the early days of the war. But then came this period, kind of like with pandemic, where you start to wake up late, you... You just feel numb, you know, and uh, it, it comes and goes in waves. Like I have good days, I have bad days, and um, it, it depends on what we learn about in the news. And um, it, it's it, every feeling is valid, but every feeling is just so intense right now. Really, you can be like uh, one day so like optimistic to the point where you almost feel manic, and then the next day you want to just scream at somebody, and then the next you feel, you know. Like you just want to cry because you can't believe just the horrible things that you're learning about that that's happening to innocent people. So, I mean, this uh, there is one uh, writer, this Andriy Kurkov, he made a really good point when the war started. He said, everybody write down every single emotion you feel right now, because this will be used like in the future. We, we need to keep all of these stories. And uh, there are people in Chernivtsi. Uh, Alexander Miket, he's Ukrainian writer. He was uh, living in, I think, Irpin or Gostomel before the war. His townhouse uh, was destroyed. Uh, but his mom is from Chernivtsi. And he, he's, he told me, uh, I interviewed him for my New Yorker piece. And he said his wife uh, is talking to a lot of refugees here and, and collecting their survival stories. So, I mean, these are stories that can be used in The Hague someday, God willing. So it's it's really important to, to make this emotions as intense and horrible as they can be useful yeah 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 all right i think let's leave it at that for now even though there's much more we could say i think i think we should try and keep it at around an hour um when when are you going to be coming to paris caitlin oh god i haven't been in almost two years the last time i stayed with vlad and regina i would I would love to go soon. I really, I miss it. I'm a PhD student in French literature, so I, I need to go to Paris. Yeah. So you, you could actually have a plausible research pretext to come. I, yeah. I, told, I told Kate that she needs to, I mean, she's not going to come in the middle of war, but I, I, when, I, when I saw her in Chernowitz about a month ago, and she was so kind, or her family were extremely kind. We became really close. I was staying with her family, uh, and we watched TV together and talked together all the time. I even did CNN hits off of their, uh, in, their in their kitchen. They thought it was really cool. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, her family's really great, and I told her to come to Paris more often. Yeah, come to Paris. I need to. I, I, my, so my husband is Ukrainian. He can't leave the country right now. Right. Uh, but I really hope to show him Paris after the is war. He in the military? Uh, no, no. But uh, no Uk uh, Ukrainian men who are of age to serve in the military are not allowed to right. leave in case there is a full mobilization. Right. So, yeah. yeah. There's no. There's no lack of Ukrainian male volunteers in the army. There's no lack of exactly, Ukrainian yeah. men. Uh, Ukrainian men. Uh, uh, in in the army, but they're they are quite uh, they're quite uh, serious about about not allowing men of military age to um, to leave. You know, we, I every time I'm on the Ukrainian border on the way out, I have all these women, young women, old women, staring at me with a mixture of disgust and contempt and wonder. And um, it's always I I always uh, I mean. I, I just kind of keep my American passport in my hand because I, I don't I don't feel comfortable myself being a patriot of a country uh, 
with them staring at me like that when they're fathers and brothers and husbands and boyfriends and lovers. I can imagine. I yeah, can so imagine. I, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Kate, obviously being uh, uh, an extraordinarily loyal wife is not going to be going to Paris in the middle of a war. I know that for a fact. Uh, even if, even if, if, even if we invite her and, and tell her to stay with us again, but I'm hoping the war ends soon so that we can, we can all see each other in Paris together. You think yeah. so? Let it be sooner than later. Is there any chance of that? Well, I mean, this is going to go for, this is going to go on for a very long time and, until, until Russia is thoroughly defeated. This is the culmination of a 20 year long process. Putinism needs to be thoroughly, thoroughly defeated before this mm -hmm. is over. I don't, I don't think that the uh, Russians are going to be stand, standing down. They just, they're, it's going to be regime change. Obviously, if he, if he lets this go, it'll be uh, the conclusion of his reign and you know the crack up of of the of the empire. They already destroyed their own economy, and there's there's no going back for them. I, they're they're going to go in totally, and the Ukrainians need to defeat them, and he needs to be brought down by whatever generals. Because ultimately, power only ever switches hands in Russia through palace coups and internal uh, disruptions, or uh, the untimely death of a of a dictator or a member of a Politburo. Only in 1917 did you have a uh, a popular revolution. Typically, Russia, which has no transition mechanism, neither did the Soviet Union, and neither does Putinist Russia ever switch power without without internal violence so whoever wants to knock him out um i hope they, they do that for their own good and the good of russian people first and most because we need we need that for everybody mm -hmm. yeah. yeah i hope all right on that optimistic note ladies <laughs> gentlemen and lady thank you so much for making the time to speak to me i will i will put this up tomorrow morning thank you for inviting um, me Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I'll put this up tomorrow morning along with notes linking to all the authors we've discussed. And um, next time in Paris, um, to celebrate Ukraine's victory. I, I already promised to buy the first round of drinks for Irina Karpa, Ukrainian writer living in Paris, whose article mm -hmm. I, I translated for Vanity Fair. So you'll have to join us. We'll have a big, big party in Paris. Oh, Ukraine's Karpa. Victory. Karpa's fun. I attended her third wedding. <laughs> good night guys bye 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 bye, bye. 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 bye.